Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, 
to all work miracles, to all possess gifts of healing, to all speak with tongues, to all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The New Testament loves using images to describe the church, the bride, the vine, the temple, the sheepfold, they're everywhere. And of course, he uses their body. And we are partway through the body image, which holds chapters 11 to 14 together. Before we dive into the details though, it's worth just stepping back and in considering why Paul uses the body to describe the church. And by church, what we mean is a gathering of people around the world. After all, Paul could have chosen to describe the church any way he wanted. See, it isn't just a clever illustration to make his points. Paul is very, very deliberate. This is Genesis 1 and 2, the fulfillment of humanity. Paul has had it in the background for so many chapters of his letter. Uh, God is creating in us a new and true humanity, what humanity was always supposed to be. At chapter 15, verse 27, we'll refer back to Psalm 8. Humanity, as it should be, in authority over the whole world, again, all through the Lord Jesus in us. The church is what God is doing in the world today. It's the purpose of humanity today, to build up the body and have it function as God designed it. Uh, knowing that could change every one of our priorities. Jesus' body, the church, is the thing that lasts into eternity. So why would you invest anywhere else? So the church is the place to be. It's where we gather and where we learn what it means to be truly human, a body serving God by reflecting his image to the world, and in a world that obsesses for hours about their own bodies, uh, how it looks, smells, feels, touches, or whatever, how should we look after this eternal body that we belong to? This morning we find a new tact within the section. Chapter 12, verse 1, spiritual gifts, or as indeed the, the footnote indicates, spiritual persons or more literally, spiritual matters. Corinth are, verse one, uninformed about spiritual matters. I think Paul is easing them in gently. He has some very harsh words to say of them in due course. And it's tricky to be precise about what he means by spiritual matters. What had they said to him originally? Why did he say this back to them exactly? It's impossible to know. What is clear is that we're eavesdropping partway through a conversation between Paul and his old church. And Paul is correcting them again. And we're in the middle of the discussion. It's like you're overhearing one end of a phone call partway through the chat. Wouldn't it be so easy to get the wrong end of the stick? Forget that and we'll get ourselves into all sorts of a muddle. See, what we have here is not Paul's systematic theology on spiritual matters. We can't be sure about lots of things here. Uh, how many gifts are there exactly? Uh, there are seven lists in the next three chapters alone, and several other lists given elsewhere in the Bible. 
None are ever designed to be exhaustive, rather illustrative. Uh, what precisely is each gift? Uh, prophecy, tongues, etc., etc. There are no glossary definitions given for them. Although for today's task, we don't need to define them. That's a job for Phil and chapter 14. So then, we must tread carefully. Must tread carefully. We have a bit of one side of a distorted, uh, dis discordant debate. In other words, we're hearing one end of a heated phone call partway through. So what can we know? What can we know? They were certainly a church who were divided. We saw their fundamental problem in chapters one to four. Divided due to deeply set worldly wisdom. And we've seen throughout the book the many manifold manifestations that worldly wisdom breeds. And so we now arrive at yet another issue, and it's dripping with worldly wisdom. See, the world is always competitive, busy ranking themselves. I'm better than you. Of course, we're trained not to verbalize that, social peer pressure and all that. But it is at the heart of all things worldly. It's a fundamental human trait. Within Corinth, though, their competition was a special type of worldliness, a sort of worldliness that only Christians can participate in. They're different classes of being Christian. The average punter versus the real McCoy, super spiritual Christian. It was always self-centered. They'd have said, internally at least, my gift was given for me, rather than my gift was given for you. They'd hold their heads proud and look down their noses. And they'd say to each other, verse 21, I have no need of you. Notice the singular there, I, not a corporate body decision. It's proud and arrogant. We've seen how pride was laced into the Corinthians' worldly life. Remember chapter 8, verse 1? Knowledge puffs up. It's ugly, deep-seated, one-upmanship. It makes the apparently weak feel inferior and the apparently strong feel superior. You can see immediately how it would totally destroy the body, can't you? And lead to a wild distortion of what God wants for his people. Imagine how awful it would be to be in a church like this. Imagine being in their meetings. What would it be like? Imagine how it would feel to be the undervalued body part. Right up front. We must agree with each other we avoid this like the plague. So we turn to Paul's thesis statement, verse 3. Verse 1, he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Maybe they'd forgotten this basic teaching. Verse 2, he reminds them of their past life of worshipping idols, which can't even talk. How stupid, considering you can talk. Why would you think that that's a God over you? Then he arrives at the heart of the chapter, verse 3. Therefore... I want you to understand that no one, notice the comprehensiveness, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one, there's the comprehensiveness again, no one 
can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly, he's not saying it's physically impossible for a God-hater to say the three magic words, Jesus is Lord, and thus be saved. Uh, it's not a magic formula with a ticket to heaven. But he is saying, say it and mean it. Say it and mean it. To say it, believe it, and actually live like Jesus is your Lord. After all, this is chapter 1, verse 2, Paul's basic definition of what it means to be Christian. It was the basic division of chapter one as well. You're worldly and pagan if you think the cross is foolish. And you're spiritual and therefore Christian if you think the cross is God's wise power to save. Do you see the point? If you're Christian, you're spiritual. If you're spiritual, you are Christian. They are, they are one and the same. There is no second class, no higher stage, and no on-fire level of spirituality. It's a beautiful leveler. And we'll instantly be correcting the Corinthians' thinking. But it's worth just pausing and observing the elephant in the room. There are some churches and movements nowadays that lean towards this kind of two-stage spirituality, either explicitly or implicitly. I have a very dear friend who grew up in so-called charismatic circles. I say so-called because the word charismatic literally just means favor freely given. It means grace. It's for all Christians. All Christians are charismatics. That's really what we're saying. That is, every Christian has received favor freely from God. Anyway, my, my dear friend who grew up in so-called charismatic circles, uh, when we were chatting about this verse this week together, uh, he recounted story after story after story about the deeply held underlying spiritual leveling up at every single meeting he, he attended. Don't get me wrong, it was always done from a genuine, sincere, reverent desire to honor the Lord, which is a great thing. But, but can you see why this sort of thing is just wrong? I'll refrain from rehearsing his stories. You may have your own. But needless to say, with Paul's thesis of verse 3 in our minds, it made me incredibly sad for many who have been very misled. I want us to feel that sadness and pray that any, albeit slightly different, yet just as divisive manifestation of this splitting of the body would never occur here within our body at St. Helens. Indeed, it's so sad and highly ironic that issues around spiritual gifts divide our generation. For what is their purpose? Verse 25, care for one another. Chapter 14, for building up one another, unifying and edifying. Yet, often, differing opinions on these issues pull us apart. It'd be so easy to point at some Pentecostals and some so-called Charismatics and then miss how we'd be splitting the body, even if the very thing we are pointing out is how they get this very thing very wrong. So before we move on, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray against that for us. 
Heavenly Father, forgive us from dividing the body over gifts from you, which you intend to unite us. Help us now to point the fingers at ourselves, first and foremost, we pray, for your glory. Amen. So, the thesis. If you're Christian, you are spiritual. If you're spiritual, you're Christian. They are um, directly correlated. It's binary. Uh, This is a stroke of genius from Paul. Uh, Start here, everything else falls into place. Remember, they thought they were levels of spirituality. Uh, They thought some were more spiritual than others. And so he goes on to prove that that just cannot be the case. And the point throughout this chapter is very simple. Unity in diversity. Um, God gives gifts. God gives gifts. God, as in verses 4, 5, 6, the diverse trinity. Spirit, Jesus our Lord, and God, united as one God. God gives gifts generously, indiscriminately, undeserved gifts. God gives gifts to all as the unity, but varied gifts. There's the diversity. How can you be boastful of something that you were given? How can you be boastful about something which we all have? A unity in diversity, one body, many parts. It's so easy to go through the chapter and see the unity and the diversity language intermingled. Uh, Unity, ends of verse 4, 5, 6. Same spirit, same Lord, same God. One united Trinitarian God. Uh, End of verse 6, who empowers them all, in everyone. Verse 11, empowered by the one and the same spirit. Verse 12, 13, all, all. All, verse 12, verse 20, one body, one body. Need I go on? The language is clearly universal. Uh, Unity. Uh, Yet at the same time as maintaining unity, there is great diversity. Uh, Diversity, almost the exact same verses, beginning of verses 4, 5, and 6. Varieties of gifts. Varieties of gifts. Varieties of gifts. The whole purpose of the list in verse 7 to 10 is not to give us a comprehensive set of spiritual giftings, like we often want it to, but to show diversity to one, to another, to another, to another, to another. Verse 11, a portion to each one individually. Verse 12, many members, many members. Verse 20, many parts. Need I go on? Unity in diversity, one body, many parts. This is where the church is very special. See, the world wants true unity with diversity like this. They aspire to unity like this all the time. Uh, Think of how the musician John Lennon puts it. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Uh, Think of politics, the United Nations, United in pursuit of global peace. I think of sport, the Olympic slogan, faster, higher, stronger, together. I think of the Rugby Union World Cup, the world in union. I'll refrain from singing it. Why unity is the universal language, the universal longing of the human heart. It's a good thing to want for. But you see, the world can't square it. 
they can't make it work. Ultimately, I'd say, because they don't have Jesus Christ as their Lord. What they are united around is not truly, eternally unifying. Uh, Did you spot um, how easily the church actually instantly unites both race and class and seemingly every other other divide imaginable? Partway through verse 13, Jews or Greeks, uh, slave or free, race, class. Wouldn't the world love to tap into that solution? Well, they can. If only they'd have Jesus as their Lord. I remember first hanging out with Mike. Mike is a Christian from New Zealand, and despite coming from the other side of the world, um, within 30 minutes, we had had a deeper connection than I'd expressed with most of my blood relatives. Because Mike has the same Bible as we do. He's got the same Lord Jesus. The world wants unity, but it will never have it. Not now, and certainly not eternally. Unity in diversity. God gave gifts. Uh, We tend to be very coy about our own gifts, and that's a shame, because they aren't ours, but his. Uh, But even more importantly than that, uh, this chapter is about recognizing each other's gifts. That's why the first question to discuss later is not what gift do you individually have, but what gift do yous, that's plural, have? Apologies for the English. We're a body, a body that needs every part to work properly together, see itself rightly, to function properly as one. We must recognize our God-given rich diversity. In fact, we all need everybody here. Let's take a look at the twin dangers for us as a church. Those, there are those who will feel inferior, and there are those who feel superior. And we'll take each in turn. The inferiority people, verses 14 to 20. I love how Paul really stretches the body imagery here. Uh, the foot and the ear start speaking. And it all gets a little abstract. But run with Paul. Imagine if the foot or the ear said, because I'm not like my closely related body part, the foot and the hand, the ear and the eye, well then, I don't actually belong here any longer. They're playing the competition game, the comparison game. It's a dangerous game. The foot thinks, I can't hold anything as well as the hand can, so logically the body needs to hold stuff a lot, doesn't it? I'm not really needed around here anymore. I don't fit in. I wonder if that describes you and your thought process when you're around us. You wonder, would anybody miss me if I wasn't here next week? But the foot has forgotten another function of the body, to walk. Unless you're exceptionally talented, like I am, you can't walk as well on your hands as you can on your feet. I'll refrain from doing a handstand in the pulpit to prove it. If I'm speaking to you, though, let me encourage you. One body. One body. If you're Christian, you're spiritual, and you're fully part of this body, we need you. We need you. You might not be able to preach or host 
or administrate or whatever else you might wish to do, but you are part of this precious body and every gift is useful. There's no spiritual appendix, if you like. Every part is crucial. The problem starts with comparison. Comparison is the root of disunity. Uh, Rather than looking left and right, we need to look up at God and what he has done. In fact, really, really verse 17, we need to imagine how nightmarish and useless a body of only eyes or ears would be. I mean, just think of an eye lying on the floor looking at you. It's more a mutated nightmare from a horror film than a beautifully balanced, well-designed, functional body. Now let's turn to the superiority people, verses 21 to 26. The eye and the hand are evidently pretty crucial for most things. My mother always used to say that I'd forget my head if it wasn't screwed on properly. But that's such a stupid statement because there wouldn't be much point to the rest of me without my head directing my body. But due to that reality, uh, there is a danger, isn't there? Over self-importance. The person who thinks, I can do this without the rest of you clogging stuff up, is in great danger. Great danger. Dare I say it? Maybe the Bible study group leader, or indeed the preacher, are particularly vulnerable to this sort of thing. If you're a leader here, do you ever wish everyone in your Bible study just followed your exact train of thought and had no interruptions whatsoever? But just think, there isn't much point of a sermon or a study if nobody is there to hear it. As a young preacher, I did actually have the scenario where I had to consider whether it was worth preaching the sermon I'd slaved for hours over, as nobody had bothered coming. But what a mutated nightmare. Imagine if the head had its own way. I don't need you. And detaches the body from the head. What does that result in? Death? Amazingly, Paul ups the stakes from death even further and decides to get graphic. Verse 22, weaker. Verse 23, less honorable, unpresentable. What's he talking about? Well, this is a family occasion, so let's not be too explicit. But who's he talking about? I don't know. Maybe the old, the ill, the embarrassing... But the point is, if anybody is spiritual, then they are part of the body. Won't you, verse 25, have the same care for our whole body as God does? He wants them to remember, you don't put underpants on your head. Sweaty groins are fragile and important, necessary, in fact. Why kick yourself where you'll cause yourself unimaginable pain? See, within the human body, each part is interdependent. You don't need to be a biologist to know just how well put together you really are. End of verse 22, seem weaker, yet indispensable. End of verse 23, we think less honorable, yet have greater honor. 
See, undergirding the logic in this is this. Anytime we get inferior or superior, uh, we're actually doubting God's sovereign, perfect ordering. Uh, did you spot that constant thread throughout the chapter as it was read? End of verse 11, a portion to each, as he wills. Verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose. Verse 24, God has so composed the body. Deliberate, perfectly arranged by God himself, just as he wanted it. Do you doubt his ordering? Do you doubt God's designing? And let us never forget, these gifts are gifts chosen perfectly for us. So they're undeserved, not rewards for goodness. God chose precisely what you needed to have for our body here. It's not a John Lewis gift list that I prepare for God to select from. I'd love to be able to be hospitable and maybe to be able to heal. Don't give me that prophecy um, gift though, Paul, or God, that would be awful. So, to not use your gift would be insultingly to reject God and the God who's given that gift to you. So I have to ask you this morning, are you serving? Are you using your gift? To which most people would say, how do I know what my gift is? Legitimate question. Although we must be careful, we must never limit our gifts to any list in scripture. Uh, the lists are illustrative and not comprehensive. Uh, there could be a gift which sits outside the defined biblical parameters. So even more so, you ask, how do I know what my gifting is? Ask these two questions. What needs to be done? Can I do it? What needs to be done? Can I do it? Now, we mustn't overstep here. Um, Paul offers up his ordering in verse 28, which clearly can't be an importance or ranking ordering. Uh, that would be to undermine his whole thrust so far. It's probably just chronological, although it could be usefulness for building up the body. Come back for chapter 14. But we're left with a tantalizing imperative. Earnestly desire. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, I don't want to steal from chapter 14 too much. But to help us in our application now, we need to know one thing. The higher gifts build up the body. So what needs to be done to build up the body? Can I do that? Then get on with it. It might not be publicly recognized, though I'm not sure that should matter at all. Can I do it? Get on with it. So as we land in application, especially as we discover what the higher gifts are over the next three weeks or so, we need to apply carefully. But for now, it's worth just gently observing. Corinth were in danger of speaking in tongues and using that gift to be superior. That's not our danger here, is it? Although there are many churches who do do that. But it's not us, not us here. 
Our danger might be a different sort of distortion of the body. Any distortion is just as dangerous. Let's consider negatively what we are to avoid before briefly touching on the positive, more of which will come in the next three weeks. What we must avoid, firstly, avoid amputation of the body, avoid amputation, missing limbs. I wonder if you've seen a church like this, uh, people cutting themselves off by just walking in at the back and leaving as soon as the meeting is formally over, having no interactions with the body. They've deprived the body of their specific gifts. They have forgotten the purpose of the body, to see each other and to encourage each other in service, all to build up the body. Essentially, they've amputated. Secondly, avoid elephantiasis. Uh, that is, a body where one part grows bigger than it should, a gross enlargement. Uh, one thinks of themselves more important than the rest, uh, elevates their gift above its natural station. Elevates their gift above its natural station. Maybe it's one person who tries to do everything and deprives the rest of the body of exercising their gifts. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles and so on? Clearly no. What an absurd body that would really be. One massive arm like Arnold Schwarzenegger and the rest of the body, a puny little body, a bit like mine. The whole body needs to work properly, together. Thirdly, avoid paralysis. Avoid paralysis. Sometimes a church can have parts which never, ever get used. So they just stop working altogether. They want the rest of the body to just serve them. And they just do nothing themselves. They become frozen. And they drag on the rest of the body. It's always the same committed few who do everything each week. Is that the case here? Don't get me wrong. Sometimes a body part might experience a, a break in the bone and need time to heal, perhaps a traumatic experience, perhaps a particular wrestle with sin or whatever else for a time. But if we're not careful and that limb doesn't start exercising their body and their gift, having taken time to heal, then paralysis will occur. They'll become frozen and stiff and never function again. Fourthly, avoid arthritis. Avoid arthritis, where one bone rubs up against another and causes pain. People rubbing each other up the wrong way in church. Can you see why Paul is about to launch into his rebuking poem of chapter 13? Love must flood our use of gifts. It's the only thing that lasts, after all. If you have a gift, which you do, if you're spiritual, know that it is not for you. The Corinthians were obsessed with their own gifts, but gifts were given to serve others. They'd forgotten that. And forgive me for stealing the positive applications from chapter 14, but we must come together with this one single aim. Bodybuilding. To grow up together. 
We want to be a fit and healthy, God-glorifying body, building for the last day together. After all, that's the only thing which will last as we strive home together. Why wouldn't you build this body until then? If you're Christian, you're spiritual. If you're spiritual, you're gifted. If you're gifted, we must use that to build up the body together. Come back for the next three weeks to find out more. I'm going to pray as we close. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in your wisdom you've united us together and diversely given us gifts. Help us to function well as a body. Help us not make some feel inferior and help us particularly not to feel superior. Help us see the body as you arranged it and composed it perfectly. And in your kindness, help us to be building each other up to that last day. Fix our eyes on that last day, we pray, as we build the body together until that moment. For your great glory, we pray all these things. Amen.